This is Party on the Peninsulas, your weekly update on the people and policies leading Michigan, with Michigan Democratic Party Chair Lavora Barnes. Welcome back to Party on the Peninsulas. I'm Lavora Barnes. The word this week, chaos. No other word can better describe Republicans in both Michigan and Washington, D.C., and what they have brought to the American people. In Washington, we got a temporary 45-day reprieve from chaos as Democrats led the way to passing a short-term federal spending authorization. 90 House Republicans voted to shut down much of the government, and the reprieve from chaos there could end any day. For all practical purposes, Speaker Kevin McCarthy turned over control of the House to a handful of extremists led by Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. They may well add to the chaos by voting McCarthy out for the sin of finally agreeing to a bipartisan compromise. We'll hear more about that mess in a moment from Congressman Dan Kildee of Flint, who serves as Chief Deputy Whip for House Democrats. The threatened MAGA Republican shutdown would have had a huge impact that hurts every American. Slashing funds for schools with low-income students, gutting law enforcement, raising housing costs, eliminating critical job training and workforce development programs, sending home food safety and drug safety workers, endangering our health. The MAGA Republican shutdown would have had devastating consequences for our communities, economy, and national security armed service members not getting their paychecks, travelers facing likely airport delays with air traffic controllers and TSA agents working without pay, FBI agents going unpaid, a welcome opening for both foreign and homegrown terrorists. Ironically, the same Republicans yelling loudest about border security voted to take paychecks away from border control officers. The MAGA extremists wanted to inflict pain on families as well. They wanted to slash WIC nutrition assistance for nearly 7 million women and children, daycare disrupted, and interruptions in Head Start and Meals on Wheels. Rather than working for a bipartisan budget compromise, those same MAGA extremists are instead devoting their energies to a fact-free impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Even their political allies at Fox News call the impeachment inquiry a waste of time. The first witnesses for the GOP gaggle openly stated under oath that there was no evidence against President Biden warranting the idea of impeachment. In Michigan, the MAGA Republicans held what amounted to a rally of election deniers and conspiracy promoters billed as a leadership conference, a bit of a misnomer since hardly any elected Republican leaders showed up for the event. Normally, the Mackinac Island Conference features multiple presidential candidates. This year, only extremist Vivek Ramaswamy appeared where he spoke to a half-empty room. Just two of the state's six GOP congressmen were in attendance. Neither of the party's state legislative leaders could be bothered to attend. Party Chair Christina Caramo told attendees that Darwin's theory of evolution is a fraud and a hoax. Man was created in his present form by God, but that leftists cling to evolutionary theory because when children are taught that one part of the Bible is false, they are more inclined to also question its other teachings. Paul Egan of the Detroit Free Press reported that frequent themes at nearly all the sessions were attacks on scientific elitism and globalism, criticism
criticism of electric vehicles as reliant on technology linked to the Chinese Communist Party and the need to enhance border security and adhere to Christian principles and the Constitution as envisioned by the nation's founders. There was even a workshop on globalism in Chile. One so-called headline speaker was defeated Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, who, like Caramo, still refuses to concede that she lost in 2022, claiming election fraud. Lake continues to spout claims of ongoing fraud as she prepares to run for the U.S. Senate in Arizona. While the GOP wallows in chaos with its pointless investigations, tanking of the American economy and leaderless leadership events, Democrats are getting the job done. Even with the smallest of possible majorities in both our State House and Senate, Democrats and the Whitmer administration have compiled a record-smashing set of successes for the people of Michigan in advancing education, voter rights, reproductive health care rights, and gun safety. Under the leadership of Speaker Joe Tate and Majority Leader Winnie Brinks, Democrats are united for progress. There is no chaos in Lansing, just results. In Washington, the Biden-Harris administration and a one-vote Senate Democratic majority continue to craft bipartisan solutions to some of the nation's most urgent challenges, creating jobs, combating climate change, and restoring America's stature in the world. Today's Republicans stand for chaos, undermining democracy, and against working people. Democrats stand on the side of workers. We fight to protect our democracy, and we work for the American people. In a moment, we'll hear from Congressman Dan Kildee on the chaos in the U.S. House. But first, an update on some of the other stories on politics and policies we're following this week with MDP's Dorian Tias. In the news this week, new polling data from Data for Progress finds that nearly two-thirds of voters, 62%, support the UAW strikes. This includes 79% of Democrats, 59% of Independents, and 48% plurality among Republicans. Since 2019, CEO pay at the big three automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, has soared by 40%. Meanwhile, auto workers have only seen their wages rise by 6%. Newly announced Republican U.S. Senate candidate Mike Rogers' record on union issues is overwhelmingly anti-labor, according to a report last week in the American Independent. Throughout his career in Congress, Rogers voted time and again to weaken union power and workers' rights at the expense of hardworking Michigan families, according to the Independent story. It notes that the last time the UAW went on strike while Rogers was in office, he sided against workers and criticized the UAW. Not only has Rogers sided with management in the past, but he also voted to effectively shut down the NLRB, repeal wage protections for workers, and co-sponsored legislation to replace overtime pay with extra time off. According to the AFL-CIO's scorecard for 2014, Rogers' final full year in the House, Rogers had a lifetime record of voting just 11% with working people. Former Michigan House Speaker Rick Johnson will spend the next four and a half years in federal prison, brought on by taking tens of thousands of dollars in bribes, gifts, and even the services of an adult sex worker in exchange for medical marijuana licenses. Johnson, 70, was sentenced to 55 months in prison by U.S. District Judge Jane Bickering on Thursday in Grand Rapids after pleading guilty to accepting bribes earlier this year. 
the former Republican lawmaker who was speaker from 2001 to 2004 will also have to pay a $50,000 fine. House Democrats have pushed through a series of bills in 56 to 54 party line votes aimed at expanding voting access, targeting existing election policies, and embracing technology to ease access to absentee ballots. If enacted, the bills would end the automatic classification of votes from newly registered voters as challenged, a change which would greatly reduce voting backups in university cities, allow for electronic voting by military spouses stationed overseas, and guarantee by law the change instituted by Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson of allowing absentee voter applications to be filed online. The state Senate Elections Committee is considering legislation to end prison gerrymandering. Currently, inmates are counted in the population of the prison community rather than their last home address, giving excessive political clout to Jackson, Ionia, and Chippewa counties at the expense of their home cities and counties. The Michigan Democratic Party has denounced a lawsuit from right-wing extremists challenging the constitutionality of last year's voter rights constitutional amendment, which was overwhelmingly approved by voters. The lawsuit claims that only the legislature has the right to change voting requirements. The Minnesota law firm, which filed the suit, has a history of lawsuits that have been laughed out of court. Attorney General Dana Nessel has joined a multi-state coalition of 20 attorneys general in opposing an Indiana law which blocks the ability of transgender youth to access critical, life-saving, gender-affirming care. The law prohibits healthcare professionals from providing gender-affirming care to transgender youth. The coalition, led by California, filed an amicus brief in support of the plaintiffs, stressing the importance of gender-affirming care for the health and well-being of transgender youth. Nestle has also joined with the Federal Trade Commission and 16 other state attorneys general in suing Amazon, alleging that the online retail and technology company is a monopolist that uses a set of interlocking, anti-competitive, and unfair strategies to illegally maintain its monopoly power. The lawsuit contends Amazon's actions allow it to stop rivals and sellers from lowering prices degrades quality from shoppers, overcharges sellers, stifles innovation, and prevents rivals from fairly competing against Amazon. The Detroit News reports that the Michigan Republican Party is virtually broke. It had about $35,000 in its bank accounts in August, according to internal records that flashed new warning signs about the dire state of the GOP's finances and raised questions about whether the organization is complying with campaign finance laws. The documents obtained by the Detroit News cover from February when party chairwoman Christina Caramo took office through August 10th, about six weeks before the party's Mackinac Republican Leadership Conference and about five months into Caramo's term. At this point, 13 months before a presidential election, former state party finance chair Tom Leonard said the Michigan Republican Party should have about $10 million in its account. The party had less than 1% of the $10 million target. These numbers demonstrate that the party isn't just broke, but broken, Leonard said. Link to these stories and other articles of interest are on our website, partyonthepeninsulas.com. For Michigan Democratic Party headquarters in Lansing, I'm Dorian Tyus. (laughs) 
Thank you, Dorian. The United States House of Representatives is an ongoing soap opera, an embarrassment for our nation. It is all due to a handful of right-wing extremists, led by Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Lauren Boebert, who have taken over control. Under the arcane rules of the House, Democrats are working behind the scenes with less extreme Republicans in an effort to right the ship. Among them, Flint's Dan Kildee. The six-term congressman is a part of the Democrats' leadership team as chief minority whip. He serves on two of the most powerful committees in the House, Ways and Means and Budget. Congressman Kildee discussed the chaotic situation in Washington on Friday morning before the 45-day truce on shutting down the government with our Walt Sork. Congressman Kildee, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, let's begin with Speaker McCarthy. Can Speaker McCarthy survive this? Is he going to lose his speakership over what's going on? And if so, Congressman, how do you replace him? Can the House function without a speaker? We've been functioning without a speaker for the last nine months. He does not do the job. He has the title. He gets the office. He gets the ceremonial aspects of it. But I still remember when Paul Ryan was elected speaker, I was there and he came down and said, hello. And of course I have huge differences with Paul, but I remember saying to him, well, you're now the speaker of the whole house. And he said, yeah, I really, I know that I still had differences with him. Don't get me wrong. I say that only to, to point out that Kevin McCarthy has not been the speaker of the whole house. He's continued to function as the Republican leader. That's what he does. And so he doesn't realize, I don't think fully understand that in that role, he has a responsibility as a critical player in the federal government, not as a critical player in the Republican party alone, but a critical player in the federal government. One of those fundamental responsibilities is to be an adult and keep the government from shutting down. Even if that means working with, he has been completely unwilling to do that. And because of it, he could end up ironically catering to the most outrageous members of his conference and at the same time allow them to take him out of the speakership. And I think that's probably the more likely scenario now. By catering to them, he's demonstrated weakness and that weakness will bite him. We all watched Mr. McCarthy struggle through 15 very public, painful rounds of voting just last January to gain the speakership. It looked like uh, in his quest to succeed there that he had to surrender all the power vested in the speakership, which would allow him to function as the actual speaker of the house of the entire house and play that role in government. He may have achieved the title, but he diminished the office in a way, not just where it, the, the house can't function, but where the speaker going forward really doesn't have the power to make the house function. I had a conversation on the floor late last night. We've had late night votes every night this week. I had a Republican friend, it's a, still a thing, believe it or not. And when we were talking about this and what a terrible mistake it was for Speaker McCarthy to allow the rule change that gives one member of Congress the authority to force a vote on the removal of the speaker. That's never been the case before. He did it in exchange for votes to become speaker, which of course is the ultimate irony is that he diminished the job that he was seeking hold in order to hold it. One of the things we will have to do, we will be in the majority and it won't be long. I pray we have to have an orderly process of democracy that respects individual and minority rights. 
but we don't have to be ridiculous about it and award to people who are fully committed to dysfunction, the tools of dysfunction. I'm critical enough of the Senate and its arcane rules that empower a single Senator to, to disrupt the, the governing process. But what Kevin seems to have done is created this, a similar situation in the House of Representatives where somebody like Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert have this authority to force a ridiculous referendum on the speakership whenever they like at their own whim. It obviously doesn't make any sense. As a part of the deal to get him elected as speaker last winter, there apparently were secret agreements that we still don't know about, even though we see these actions and what the speaker has been trying to do to cater to his extreme right wing. It seems those have also undermined his authority and his ability to to lead the entire house, when in fact he's got to cater to literally a handful of people at a time in his caucus in order to remain where he is. It seems like it's an untenable position for him to be in. You're right. We're only now beginning to see what some of those uh, arrangements that were uh, entered into in order to get the votes for speaker, what those look like. We're seeing it play out, in, in fact, in this appropriations process because we're spending hours upon hours voting on inane amendments offered by equally inane members of Congress that have zero chance at all of ever becoming law. Most of them muster 30, 40, 50 votes on the floor of the house. It is so rare for us to spend so much time. It's hard for people to believe this on things that don't go anywhere, but this has taken it to an extreme. And it's, it seems clear to me that this is part of the price that Kevin was willing to pay in order to become the speaker. And of course, the word, the most egregious uh, deal he made was to give the, the Freedom Caucus the ability to blow up the place at their own whim, at the time of their own choosing. What about this Biden impeachment inquiry that's going on now? Do you think that was a part of the agreement for him to become speaker, that he agreed to allow it at some point? I think it very well could have been. Again, we'll never know the full detail of it, but it's pretty clear that he has felt compelled to allow this Biden impeachment to go forward, despite the fact that Republicans and leading Republicans who've looked at this acknowledge that there's absolutely no evidence that would support it. In fact, I don't know if you saw Jonathan Turley's testimony, not a person with whom I would normally align on some of these questions, intellectually honest, and said, look, this does not rise to the level. You don't have evidence that supports moving forward on an impeachment. I'm on the Ways and Means Committee. I sat through a long debate the other day about tax records that they wanted to turn over to the impeachment committee. The chairman of the Ways and Means Committee couldn't explain what he just put in front of us and voted upon. He was asserting that Joe Biden was influencing the decisions of government back in 2017. In 2017, he was not the president, not the vice president, not a candidate for president. And if somebody thinks Joe Biden had the ability to influence Bill Barr and Donald Trump, they need a lesson in recent history and in civics. This is just who they are. They make stuff up. Let's bring it back to home and the UAW strike. Over the week, we saw two very high-profile politicians, the president and the former president, come to Michigan to try to insert themselves into the strike. Why don't you give from your perspective how you saw the visit by President Biden and then the visit by Donald Trump? I think it's very clarifying 
uh, watching the two and listening to their statements. Joe Biden has been unambiguous. He stands with the workers. He believes the companies need to do more. I happen to share that view, but I think it was refreshing to hear a president say it with that sort of uh, clarity and authenticity. He wasn't dancing around it and saying, well, the two sides, he, he said, I stand with the workers and he came and stood with the workers. Donald Trump went to a non-union shop to talk to auto workers who were not auto workers. Joe Biden, people can criticize Joe. Maybe he sometimes doesn't turn the phrase we would like him to, but he's authentic. He was with the workers. He said he was with the workers. He went and stood with the workers. Donald Trump went through just another charade, another sort of plastic presentation. And the lack of authenticity just reeked. So, and people see through that. Water workers see through that. We know where we are when it comes to many union members who felt uh, disconnected to the Democratic Party. I get that. But this could be a clarifying moment, at least for the people I represent, because I think Sean Fain had it right. Donald Trump re represents the millionaire and billionaire class that they're fighting against right now at the bargaining table. So they don't want to hear any advice from a billionaire, if he is one. You, of course, come from Flint, right in the heart of auto country. What are you hearing from your constituents about the two visits and more? And as importantly about the strike, how are people on the picket lines feeling? It's somewhat reassuring in the sense I've been on the picket lines, as you might expect, to hear the, the unity. And I think this is, I think, an important question for us going forward in the next few years. I think the members that I've spoken to, the people back home, some, some have their own political views, but generally speaking, there's this sense that we are all in this together, that what the UAW is fighting for is not just better wages, working conditions, benefits that would help them, but they're fighting to reclaim something that is an important part of our legacy. Back in the thirties, through the labor movement, we began the construction of the middle class in America. And it was only through organized labor that the middle class was established. And so in some ways, what I think separates this particular strike from some of the more recent ones is that it very much feels like we're trying to reclaim something that we know we helped build and that required some sacrifice. And this strike is seen as that moment of sacrifice, knowing that it's going to be better for all of us in the end. It will, it'll create reset a standard, take us back to a place where workers get their fair share of the wealth that they make, that they produce with their own hands. I mean, it seems so fundamental because it is. This strike has more in common with the 1936-37 sit-down strikes than any other strike in recent history because it, it's really about establishing the reality that workers ought to be able to have a fair share of the wealth that they generate. Companies are hugely profitable. People know that. And so there's a lot of support. Some people are typically get falling into their own political instincts on this, but generally speaking, people are, are standing really strong with these workers. Congressman Dan Kildee, thank you for your valuable insights on the strike and what's going on, the chaos in the U.S. House. Not your fault, but thank you for sharing your thoughts with us on all of that. And as always, good luck. Thank you. It was good to talk to you again. That's our report for this week. 
My thanks to Congressman Dan Kildee for his national leadership and firm hand as he works to repair the mess created by GOP chaos in Washington. Before we go, a note on the passing of one of the giants of politics and especially of the women's movement, Senator Dianne Feinstein. Senator Feinstein achieved remarkable political breakthroughs as a woman, becoming San Francisco's first female mayor and the first woman elected to the Senate from California. She became the mayor of San Francisco after a horrific double assassination at City Hall in 1978, and then gained national stature as an influential voice in the United States Senate for more than 30 years. As chairwoman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, she oversaw a damning report detailing the CIA's post-9-11 program of detaining terrorist suspects at secret prisons around the world and subjecting them to torture techniques, ostensibly to uncover and prevent future attacks. Those practices finally ended as the result of an executive order from President Obama. Dianne Feinstein was the longest-serving woman senator in history. She will be missed. Our podcast audience is growing, and we thank you for that. Please share in your circles, both on social media and in conversations with your like-minded friends. I'm Lavora Barnes. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, and hope you will be too. Party on the Peninsula is a production of the Michigan Democratic Party. 